Welcome to the Revolution Podcast, a joint project of the Education Trust and New Teacher Center. Here we engage leaders in conversations around how we navigate these uncharted times in our schools in a way that truly revolutionizes the learning opportunities our students experience daily. In today's conversation with Kim Pittman of the Forum for Youth Investment, we explore what it looks like to put students at the center in this moment and onward in order to revolutionize education. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Welcome to the Revolution Podcast. I'm Kristen Wendell with the New Teacher Center, and today I'm speaking with Karen Pittman, co-founder, president, and CEO of the Forum for Youth Investment. Karen, I'm so glad to be speaking with you today. I'm glad to be with you as well. Can we just start off with you telling our listeners about yourself and your work? I'm the president and CEO of the Forum for Youth Investment. We call the forum an action tank. We really move ideas to impact. And the ideas that we move are primarily ideas about what it takes to support young people being ready and successful for college, work, and life. Personally, this is the fifth and probably the last organization or center that I will start up over my lifetime. I'm actually about to retire, so I'm at the end of a long journey, but it's always had a focus on what it takes to really start with young people at the center. And then and figure out how we help adults and settings and systems support them as best we can. So you've had quite the journey in thinking about how we support our youth. And we are now at a time that looks very different from most of what you've done, if not all of what you've done. And kind of when we think about where our country is in terms of what's happening with the pandemic, in terms of the protests and uprisings against racism in our country. And so when you think about what we need to be doing to support our young people right now, what are some of the ways we should be focusing our leadership and our resources for what's best for them? It's always a challenge to really think about the best ways to support young people at a time of change. As schools and as communities and as a country, we really have an opportunity to not pretend that everything was going well before all of these sort of simultaneous disruptions happen. One of the phrases that we often flip around is there's a lot of conversation about social emotional learning, but it really is important for us to acknowledge that if we flip social emotional learning around, learning is social and emotional, always. If we don't really figure out how we've made young people feel socially accepted and emotionally safe in the environments that we're creating for them, and we don't acknowledge that even if we have created an environment that feels safe, if they've immediately come out of an environment that didn't feel safe or know that they're about to go into one that doesn't feel safe, you're still not going to optimize the learning experience that they have. What we have an opportunity to do right now is to really reimagine what learning and development looks like from what I would call an ecosystem perspective versus a siloed system perspective which doesn't mean that everybody has to partner consciously. It's about thinking differently. When we're getting to this disruption that schools are having to respond to in very amazing and very different ways, it's not enough for us to just say that this is a contract between schools and families. We have to really acknowledge the invisible supports that are there in communities and in extended families. And we also then have to acknowledge the extreme level of disparities that can often be there in those supports. Yes, a lot of the educators I've been talking to are speaking to the fact that the change can't just be their classroom or their schools. And it, it, it's not just I as a principal, I'm going to talk to my families. It's I have work as a principal with my families, with my community resources. How are we all going to coalesce around what's best for the children in this moment. And I think one thing we're doing with this podcast and this campaign is it's the revolution podcast, right? So we're really thinking about how do we not return to what was before? 
and how do we change it and make it better to better serve our children and better serve our youth in ways that we haven't done in the past. So if you were to imagine what a revolution might look like in the context of schooling for our young people, what might that be? First of all, I love the word revolution. And I like the idea in general that folks who sort of do equity and design work start with, which is start from the margins. It's going to be a lot easier for us in some ways if we start to build back in ways that feel efficient to not notice that we're not including some kids. We already have school districts acknowledging that when they went to virtual learning, sometimes upwards of 30% of the kids, they never logged in once. We've got a responsibility when we say all students to actually know who they are, know where they are. And that has to include more than just an internet hotspot. That actually has to include people. I mean, we need warm spots where there are people who have relationships with kids who will help them figure out what's going on, who will work with their families, who will adjust when the schools change schedules, and then we can bring in the learning. If we begin to ask the question of how do we make sure we're doing the best we can to stabilize, even if we can't optimize learning environments for those kids who are most vulnerable for a variety of reasons, then I think we're on our way towards a revolution because that's really what we should have been doing all along. I love the mental image of a warm spot and not just a hot spot for the internet, but a human and that human connection. And I know relationships are critical for students to feel welcomed in their school and to feel a part of what they're doing. What would you recommend to a teacher or a principal who's listening now and they're thinking, how do I build relationships with my children and my youth if I'm not in a room with them? What would you say they might start with? I think the first step for building relationships is recognizing where they exist. Your young people may have had relationships with non-classroom personnel in the building. Who are the adults that you know, that you trust, that you rely on? And then especially because of the pandemic on, on on the COVID side, we have to ask the question of where are the safest, stablest places for your kid to be when they're not with you? And if that can't be school, then we also have to recognize we don't want to put families in the position of choosing. And I think, you know, for the time being, the message is going to have to be flexibility and innovation. I appreciate the attention to almost the spider web of relationships that a a child could have in a school where it may not be the teacher who's their primary person, but their bus driver who picks them up every day. That's their person. When we had our first podcast episode for this series with Tangiri Marshall, she spoke about how our value system is coming to light now, what we value as adults. And what you're speaking to is how a community shows that they value their children. You alluded to this earlier that schools are going to look different this year in terms of academics and what children are capable of learning or how far they get into their content. And so often schools measure their success based on numbers. They look at their data and they say, did our students learn what they needed to learn this year? Yes or no. And so when we think about measuring success this year, how do we do that for our students? How do we think about what success means for this school year? I think success first has to start with the most basic measurement, which is we have to rethink attendance before we can even get to achievement. What is it? What does it mean? If you're not requiring me to be in the building from X time to Y time, what does attendance mean? We assumed that if we had young people in the building for a set number of hours, a certain amount of learning was going to happen. We have the reality that that's not going to happen. So now we have to be very flexible about what attendance means. Does attendance mean screen time? 
I think it's going to drive us back to relationships and experience. It's going to drive us back to measuring first whether we have created the conditions and opportunities for learning before we double down to measure achievement. The second thing that I would say is this really, really, really is an opportunity for us to push the boundaries of what we think learning means. When we think about youth success at the forum and other organizations that really sort of focus on youth development, youth success, according to the research, really has three broad components. Young people are building a strong set of competencies that they know how to use that are portable. They can move them around. They are building a strong sense of identity and they are building a sense of agency. But I do think, first and foremost, we're going to have to find a way to hold ourselves accountable for asking whether we have been flexible and creative in making sure that every young person has a stable learning environment that is relationship rich and is providing them with adequate experiences. Everything you just shared centers the student and the need of the child or the youth that someone is working with. And I think that is so powerful when we think about how do we approach the school year? We take the children, we put them at the center and we say, what is it that you need? Tell me where you are. Tell me what you have learned. I've also heard a lot around learning loss and we have to catch kids up and I'm, I'm like, catch them up where? Catch them up to where, where are they going? <laughs> like, where are we catching them up to? Um, and I appreciate you naming that student agency because many of my friends who have young children and middle age, like middle grades children are like, my child's not going to tolerate a stack of worksheets ever again because they've now had the experience of having power of what do I do from eight to four? I choose which lesson I'm going to do based on how I feel. I want to read right now. Cool. I'm going to go sit on my couch and read a book. And what that's going to look like when our children come back and say, here's what worked for me. And how do we help teachers prepare to hear that? And then put that into action is a question I feel like is probably on many educators' minds. And hugely important. And when we said, how can we sort of leapfrog into a reimagined learning that is much more consistent with what we know about how learning happens? That we know that all young people have incredible potential when they're in the right kind of environment. That again, starts with relationships. We then have to really check to make sure those relationships that we're building are yielding young people feeling safe and supported. We can't assume that because we created an environment that works for some kids, it works for all kids. But once we've got those two plates spinning, then clearly we need to pay attention to any individual supports young people need to have, especially as we come back from the level of trauma and disruption that has happened. But we shouldn't do that in a deficit way. And we don't want to have a, a wrestling match over now who's in charge of learning when presumably the goal has always been to empower young people to own their own learning. And the only way we're going to let those two groups adjust is to make the setting as flexible and warm as possible and to give them as much time as possible to figure out who they are. One of our goals in hosting this campaign and this podcast is to really help our listeners live into that change that's going to be required for our schools to be centered on our students and to really do what's best for children and our youth. What's your call to action for our listeners? What's something they could do tomorrow? What's something they could do next week, next month to really live into how we can revolutionize our communities to best support our children and youth? I like the simple phrase, how learning happens. And I would love to have all of us ponder for ourselves and then ask the young people in our lives, you haven't been in a school building 
for a while. And you may not be going back to a school building, but I don't assume that you haven't been learning. So can you tell me the things that you think you've learned in the past, whatever time period you want? And can you tell me how it happened, how and where it happened? So I would say the one thing all of us can do from wherever we are is ask ourselves how we've seen learning happen. Ask our young people, how did you learn? You know, Where did you learn? What has been working for you? And then really figure out how we maximize making that happen in as many places as possible. How learning happens. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Karen. I really appreciate it. I, I think that your call to action to ask the question, how learning happens, is inspiring and is something that each of us can do today, tomorrow, and the next day. So thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us on The Revolution Podcast, sponsored by the Education Trust and New Teacher Center. To engage more deeply in our work, please visit our Revolution Campaign website at www.newteachercenter.org.